What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. We do not stop at training and nutrition. We go much deeper, and we cover all things personal development. My goal with this podcast is to live my passion, coaching, through your speakers, through your headphones, and help coach you to being a better version of yourself. If you are new to this podcast, please do me two huge favors. The first one being simply subscribe. Make sure you are getting constantly updated with the episodes, and we are dropping three per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so you're going to want to be updated because we're dropping so much free content for you. The second thing, drop down into the description in the show notes of this episode and check out our top four most popular episodes. That's going to be the nutrition FAQ, the training FAQ, my personal journey into fitness, and last but not least, nutritional periodization. Today's episode is a training and nutrition Q&A. Q&As are some of my favorite podcasts because I literally get to sit here and rant um, and help people. <laughs> That's why I really do this. Uh, all my favorite things in the world, which is training and nutrition. Um, and I get to take all the stuff that I study, all the stuff I learn, all the stuff I read, all the stuff I apply inside of our coaching at Boom Boom Performance. And I get to help the listener, you, grow and get better results. So today you're going to get a ton of great content. There's a lot of good questions centered around training and nutrition. And I'm really excited to help you with those. But guys, I want to mention real quick a couple things before we get into the episode. The first one being if you are listening to this show and you love the content, but you're not asking me your individual questions, which there is a lot of you out there who listen to the show, who share the show, who constantly soak up this information, but you never get a chance to ask me your questions, I highly encourage you to go to boomboomperformance.com slash podcast. There is a form that you can fill out. Your email will not go into any spammy list. You will not get emailed back unless it's directly from me answering your question. So when you fill this out, you fill out your name, your email, and your question. It goes directly to my personal inbox. I can either A, respond via email and help you by answering your question directly, or B, I can save it for the next Q&A podcast, and again, I can help you directly on the show. So I want to encourage everybody, head over to boomboomformance.com slash podcast. Ask me your question. It could be training, could be nutrition, could be business, could be lifestyle, could be something funny could be something personal, literally anything that you can think of that you want me to bring up on the show, please head over to boomboomformance.com slash podcast and ask me your question. The next thing I want to mention, guys, uh, as you have heard multiple times, and if you are in the Pacific Northwest, you may either already be coming or this is a good opportunity for you to join us. We are holding a seminar here this month in just a couple weeks, July 20th and 21st, myself and Lauren Conlin at Aspire Athletics in downtown Seattle. I would love for you guys to come out and listen to us speak, learn from us, be educated by us, and train with us on the second day on Sunday. Um, so if you're in the Northwest, make sure you go into the show notes, grab a ticket, and come hang out with us. But if you're not in the Northwest or you are too busy during that weekend, you're traveling, anything uh, going on in your summer, which is a lot of people listening to this, um, that you're not unable to actually attend with us, but you still want the information, you want the education, and you want to connect with us. Now is your chance. We're opening up the live stream. So what this means is you can purchase a ticket to the event at a lower rate. You will get the live stream video so you could actually be there with us. After the fact, you will get the recorded HD version of the video that you can save and personally have on your computer or your hard drive or wherever you store your videos. And lastly, you will get access to the private Facebook group for three months, which means you have access to the live stream over and over again. And you also have access to Lauren and I to ask us questions about what we cover in the seminar. So if you really want to be at this seminar, the best physique seminar where we teach coaches and trainees alike how to diet, supplement, perform cardio and training for their best physique or how to educate their clients on how to do so, 
this is your chance to either join us at the event or purchase the live stream and the recorded version with access to the Facebook group. If you come to the event, you'll get access to all that as well. Either way, you guys should be there with us in person or watching through your screen. I highly recommend it. I can't push it hard enough because the information we are going to provide at this event is going to be over the top. There's so much experience between Lauren and I working with thousands of individuals at the highest levels and the most general population levels. And we're going to be able to take all this information and all your frequently asked questions and deliver it in a way that you can seriously apply to your own body and with your clients. So guys, both of the links, either live stream or the live event itself, both of those links are in the description of this podcast. Drop down into there, click either one, Get your ticket. Let's get you guys involved and get you guys excited as we are for this event. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the Q&A. All right. Let's pull up this first question. First question today comes from Thiago Temple. You got a dope name, bro. Thiago Temple. Temple just reminds me of like a um, an ancient – I mean, obviously, it's like a temple, an ancient Aztecan name, and Thiago – it's dope. I like it. I love when I read people's names and it's cool names. I love that. It's a really weird thing about me that I love. Since you responded to this email, I was glad and surprised you did. I'm going to shoot you a question that you might decide to answer on one of your podcasts. I'm a listener as well. So just for everybody listening, um, I didn't <laughs> – this is obviously how – I say this all the time. I don't, I don't preface or audit what I read on this podcast. I just go off the cup. Um, but I didn't know that I left that in there. But my point with it is, is – and I'm glad I read it. I answer everything. I get a lot of emails, and for people who are not my paying clients, it might take me a little bit of time to get back to you, but I respond to everything, every DM, every Facebook message, every email, and I, I encourage them. I answer everything, so I encourage everybody to always always feel free to email me. If it's a question and I feel like it will be better served with the podcast, I'll just tell you, hey, I think I'm going to throw this on the podcast. Stay tuned and listen, uh, but no matter what, I answer everything, and I think it's funny when – People say I'm surprised you did because there's a lot of influencers and a lot of great coaches and people like that that won't take the time to do so. And it's a shame because you guys listening to this, you guys who email me, you guys who DM me, you are the reason I'm able to do what I love every day. It's your support, your interest, and your thirst and hunger for more education that allows me to continue growing as an individual and as a business owner and as a coach. So I, I like feel like it's my duty to answer these and, and give you guys better education, not only from the sense of you guys are supporting me and you guys share this podcast and you guys share my emails and you guys do all those things, but also from the sense of the, the space of this industry and there's so much – unfortunately, there's a lot of negativity inside the fitness and nutrition space. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of fads. There's a lot of gimmicks. Um, and if I'm not constantly helping people through education, um, through my content, then – I don't know how to make a change. You know what I mean? Um, like the whole uh, every like changing the world starts with you, or kind of thing. Is is I do believe that in this space is like it takes individuals like me that are evidence based that want to educate people. Like one by one, we can change this industry. So anyway, um, I feel called to respond to you, man. So thank you for emailing me in the first place, and thank you for listening to the podcast. I've been training for less than a year. And to profit from those beginner gains, I'm on a caloric surplus of around 350 calories per day. I think that's perfect. My weight trend is going fine around the mark of gaining three pounds per month. It's right about right as well. I weigh – and again, guys, listening to this, he's a beginner. Uh, he's been training for less than a year. Um, and dude, just the fact that you're doing this in this structured way and you're 
emailing me and you're listening to podcasts, like kudos to you because when I first started, I was impatient and I lacked the ability to sit down and really research and, and try to get the right information. I just had the shotgun approach and I was trying a million different things every other week and it was resulting in no increases in any one thing. Um, so kudos to you. But for most people listening to this, if you're not a beginner, um, if you're not in your first year, don't expect to gain three pounds per month uh, because it'll be a lot of fat. Um, for me personally, so like right now, just to like sh- shed light on like how this looks, I've been training since I was 18 years old. I started, um, so that would be eight years, almost nine. Uh, nine, it'll be nine years, and actually, it's nine years right now because I graduated high school and I started training right away, um, and I turned 27 in 21 days from now from this recording. So, um, from while I'm recording this, my birthday's on the 24th, and where am I going with this? Oh, I've been training for nine years. I would say eight years because the first year was trial and error and I was doing a bunch of stupid shit. Um, so let's say eight years. I am on a cut right now, August 31st, August 30th. That weekend, I am doing a photo shoot. Um, and after that photo shoot, I am planning on starting a one-year lean gain phase. What I am going to target is one pound per month, 1.5 pounds at most. Um, what that will look like, hopefully, is about eight to 10 pounds gained over the course of 12 months. The reason I say eight to 10 pounds is because after about three to four months, I probably will have accumulated a little fat. I'll probably do a short three to five week mini cut to trim that down and I'll get back to lean gains. So that seesaw approach will eventually lead to me gaining about eight to 10 pounds in 12 months. But that's aiming for one to 1.5 pounds per month. That is the rate of an advanced lifter. Right, I would say that I'm an advanced lifter. However, there have been things in the last two years that have not been optimal. Um, volume being one, training split being one, consistency being one because of the growth of my business, starting a family, things that kind of took priority over my lifting. I haven't been able to be really serious in a long time. My surgery kind of motivated me to change that. And going into this year of gaining, I'm absolutely going to be prioritizing training split, diet, supplementation, sleep, those things to optimize everything. So at that sense, I I believe 1 to 1.5 pounds per month is reasonable and it's doable with very little fat gain. But again, that's only 1 to 1.5 pounds. So that's very like four weeks of grinding and you're gaining like a quarter of a pound a week. Like people will be like, fuck, that's just – it's like a snail's pace. I don't know if I could do it. But then if you think about like, okay, if I start that – Let's say August, September, I'm going to stay lean for September, uh, stay lean for, I'm going to probably start realistically in uh, December. I am going to the Bahamas at the end of November, and I want to make sure that I'm still looking good then. So I'll probably start around then, but the point is, is after a full year, if I have 10 pounds on my body, fuck, I'll look like a different human being. Like I can go at a snail's pace if that's what it's going to result to. And the people we see on Instagram and Facebook and in bodybuilding.com articles or in magazines and things that we look up to as far as physiques, that's what it, that's what it takes. Like it, it just takes that time. Anyway, Diago, I'm sorry. I'm getting on a fucking tangent, uh, not answering your question. My weight trend is going fine around the mark of gaining three pounds per month. I weigh myself every day and I'm aware of water variations, but I mainly see the scale increase during the weekends, which is when I'm not training, only walks as a form of exercise. Is that normal or even okay? P.S. I'm gaining strength by the week and I eat around the same number of calories every single day. Uh, yeah, it is normal. So you are gaining, you are increasing the scale the most during the weekends. So this could be one of two things. 
Um, number one, you are consuming the same amount of calories every single day, meaning you have no undulation of your calories. You're not carb cycling, anything like that. And what that tells me is that when you are consuming uh, the amount of calories you are consuming on the weekend, but you are not training, what is happening is you are probably retaining more fluid and you are probably retaining more muscle glycogen. Not a bad thing because it's intracellular fluid, which basically means your body is taking water and carbohydrates and probably a little bit of sodium and it is storing it inside the muscle cell. So this is going to weigh down the scale. Uh, you do that through the week, but through the week you are burning glycogen inside your training. Weekend you're not burning glycogen. So instead of burning glycogen during the weekend, you're storing that glycogen. Um, add to that, that's extra just food volume in your stomach that you're not burning directly. Um, I would also say that there could be, and this is probably not the case because the weekend is two days. That's a very short term. Um, if it was more of like a week-long thing, we've seen this in studies, but you could be having a super compensation effect where during the week you're overreaching. Monday through Friday, you're going really hard. Yes, you're burning glycogen, but you're also breaking down muscle tissue. You're getting sore. You're pushing the volume. And then on Saturday, Sunday, you take a full break. So your body finally gets a chance to rebuild muscle tissue and kind of have this uh, super compensation effect, right? They've seen this in people where they do overreaching programs. So they will go four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, however many weeks, pushing volume up, pushing intensity up, basically o purposely overreaching. So getting to a point of where you're at your maximum recoverable volume, probably training a little too hard. You're probably going a little overboard. You're not overtraining, quote unquote, because overtraining is, is damn near impossible for most people. Um, you have to be pretty adrenally fatigued to get there or literally be so ignorant and uh, neglect the signs of overreaching for so long that you actually get to a state of depression. You get to a state of like almost bedridden. There's been people that have literally been bedridden from overtraining. So when most people are like, oh, I'm overtrained right now, yet you're still going to the gym and doing light workouts, you're still walking around, you're still positive, you're not overtraining. If you're bedridden, you're not motivated, you're depressed, everybody sucks, you don't want to get out of the – go to the gym at all – you're probably overtrained. It's, it's a pretty serious thing. But overreaching is where you go, fuck, I need a deload. But what they saw in these studies is basically taking people to an overreaching state and then pulling back for up to a week where you just don't train. There's a super compensation effect. So we go super hard and keep driving up and then we drop off. And when we drop off and give the body a break, it has this super compensation effect where we see this uh, accumulation of muscle tissue growth. So that could be happening too. So I'd say it's one of those, either of those things, but either way, I think it's pretty normal. Um, and it's a good thing for people listening to this who don't even want to gain weight, um, who are trying to lose weight. It's a good thing for you to know, because if you're training real hard during the week and you notice the weekend you gain weight, could be because you eat out and you have too much sodium, could be because you're not working out and you're not storing or you're not burning glycogen as much, but either way, it's just not something to, to worry about. And, and that's actually why I prefer clients to weigh every single day because if you track your weight every single day and at the end of every week you look at a uh, an average, you can see trends much better because at the end of the week, you're going to see your average trend. So if I see your weekly average weight dropping over the course of weeks and months, we're trending in the right, right way. We're going towards the right goal. If I see that every other day you're fluctuating like crazy, we could be like, hey, are you having a lot of stress? Are you having poor sleep? Are you just fluctuating sodium like crazy? Do you have days where you're dehydrating, days where you overfuel? Like, so you can see these things, but it, it, fluctuations are common, so it's good for you to see those and be like, oh, okay, like my weekly trends are going down, um, my weight fluctuation day to day, that's normal. And if I only were to weigh in one day, like let's say I had Saturday was my quote-unquote weigh-in day, 
I might have had too much salt on Friday. I might have had less sleep or anything, and it shot the scale up. Um, shit, like two days ago, I weighed in, and I was three pounds heavier. And I was like, whoa, what the fuck? Weighed in the next day, and it was back gone. I was like, huh, must have been stressed. Must have had bad sleep. Must have ate too much salt. But it's not going to mess with me. But if that was my only weigh-in day every week, I w- it would have drove me crazy because I'm on a cut. And I would have adjusted unnecessarily um, and messed with progress. So it's really important for people to hear that because I think there was this big – this thing where and I even did it with a lot of clients and there's still clients to this day where I'll be like hey we got to take a break from the scale because mentally I don't think it's smart for you but I think it's also good for people to be educated on the fluctuation so by weighing in every day you can actually see that it's not as big of a deal as as your mind makes you think it to be um, the scale isn't everything it's 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 a very little tiny piece of the puzzle all right so uh Kevin's journey how do I figure out my new TDEE, so total daily energy expenditure, to determine my maintenance? Do I continue adjusting it as I go down in weight to the current weight I'm at, or do I go by the weight I was when I started the cut? I'm trying to figure out how to set up my refeeds and diet breaks as I continue the diet phase. So yes and no. Yes and kind of, I would say. So the yes part is technically if you want to get your truly accurate total daily energy expenditure – um, determined, you would adjust it down as your weight goes down because as your body weight goes down, the total mass that your body has to move changes. And as the total mass your body has to move lowers, technically you're having less energy expenditure because you're a lighter piece of mass. You're lighter in volume and your body's not going to burn as many calories in order to move it and go through your daily functions. So I would say that uh, if you really want to know your TDEE, yeah, you would have to adjust along the way according to your new weight. Um, I think that's kind of uh, unnecessary because you would be calculating a new TDEE every single week. Um, And especially because you don't necessarily need to calculate that every single time in order to find your new maintenance. Because I have found with clients, you know, like I'll have a client, like we start with their maintenance calories, let's say, and then we create a deficit. And every two weeks or three weeks, we create a refeed. On those refeeds for two to three days, let's say, we bring their calories back up to where they were when we started at their quote-unquote maintenance, which may not be their true maintenance but because they're losing weight now, but we can refeed them on that previous maintenance, and we're not going to have any negative repercussions. They're going to gain a couple pounds from water, and then they lose that, and they keep progressing. I would rather do that. Um, then lower their refeed if I don't have to. Now, as I lower calories again and again, so probably after my like second and third adjustment, I'm probably going to lower their refeeds to the same degree as I lower their general calories. So if I create a 5% caloric reduction in their daily intake, I'm also going to create a 5% caloric reduction in their maintenance or refeed calories. It's pretty simple. Um, it's just you can kind of you don't have to recalculate everything when you make an adjustment to their calories you make adjustment to their refeed calories that's basically what you're going to want to do um however you're going to want to keep them as high as you can and you're going to want to do them right if you're only doing one refeed per week it's totally different but if you're doing refeeds for the purpose of creating a diet break to bring you back to maintenance for long enough to have that kind of insurance policy on your metabolism and hormones then you're going to want to try to keep it as close to your previous maintenance as possible simply because that's going to be your body's true homeostasis, right? Now, as again, as you lose significant amounts of weight, you're going to have to drop that. And the best way to do that is to just reduce it by the same percentage that you reduce your total calories. Pretty simple. Ash White, 1987. Two questions. Thoughts on performing daily vacuum ab sets for slimming the waist. So for anybody not listening – or. <laughs> 
for anybody not listening to this podcast, uh, you obviously wouldn't hear me. For anybody listening to this podcast that doesn't know what a vacuum, quote unquote, vacuum abset um, is, it's a, it's a vacuum pose. So if you if you Google search uh, bodybuilding vacuum pose, it's just a it's literally a style of posing. So in bodybuilding, they basically suck in, they kind of flare their rib cage, they pull their abs in tight. It, it m- creates the illusion of very big shoulders because their lats kind of wing out, their chest wings out, their arms uh, create a wider illusion, and their waist looks very skinny. So to create that X frame, I believe Frank Zane was very popular for this, but to create that kind of X frame or that V taper, it's a really good pose to do. Um, there's been some thought process around doing vacuum posing to create a thinner a, a, a thinner waist, a slimmer waist. I would say that's a complete myth. Um, the reason I would say that is because your waist as a size also has to do with your hip and bone structure. So I don't care how good you get at sucking in, when you're generally just standing there, your bone structure is your bone structure. So if you want the illusion of a slimmer waist, you have to do one of two things. Either A, build up your chest, shoulders, and lats because those are going to be the the top part of that triangle or that X that gives you that look. And the second thing is to just lose as much fat as possible. As you start losing fat, obviously the stubborn places go last. For most people, that's going to be hips for women, uh, some stomach for some women too, um, and stomach and love handles, low back for guys. As we lose fat and get closer and closer to our leanest physique, that's when we're going to start creating more fat loss in those stubborn areas. They're rarely the first to go, but they're usually the last to go. So the best thing to do is build up your upper body and, and lose fat. So if you lose fat, you'll create that illusion. Doing vacuum poses isn't a bad thing if you want to build intra-abdominal strength because it can really teach you breathing technique. It can uh, create strength in your uh, abdominal wall, your diaphragm, and again, the intra-abdominal walls uh, and muscles. Uh, But it's more of just – that's just like a strength thing. It's like just building – your ability to do the vacuum pose. It builds the skill of it and it builds the strength of those abdominals that perform that that movement or that uh, strength feat. But to create a slimmer waist, I would say it doesn't create a slimmer waist. It gives the illusion of a slimmer waist when you do it, but you're not going to walk around doing a vacuum pose all the time. Second question was tips for females who are bulking to avoid gaining a lot of fat. Take a very slow approach. I think more women need to do this. More women are doing this. I have a handful of women that are doing this with me, and, and I respect the hell out of them, and I'm so happy to see it. But I think more women need to periodize over the course of a year and add in a gaining phase. I think there's a lot of women that I've seen over the years that really want a certain look, and when they lose weight or when they lose weight or they lose fat, and they get to this quote-unquote weight or size that they thought they needed to get to, when they get to that point, they're disappointed because they're not as lean um, or dense or quote-unquote tone as they thought they would be. And basically what this means is basically they're just not – they don't look as athletic as they want to be. They don't have the physique that they expected to have when they get to that point. The problem being is that they didn't have the amount of muscle mass they wanted. So we see a lot of women on Instagram that have these very impressive bikini figure-like physiques and we want to lose weight, quote-unquote, to get there. But the reality is, is that's not how you get there. The way we get there is by building muscle and then getting lean. So for the individuals listening that are interested in having an athletic physique that are a female, the best thing to do is Get lean. You have to get lean first because we can't just start bulking and get fat. 
but get lean. Don't get extremely lean to the point where you're dieting too hard for too long, but get lean enough to where you can see maybe the outlines of your abs. You can start to see muscle definition in your shoulders, your upper back, um, maybe your quads when you flex, things like that. And then from there, you start a lean gain. And you should be trying to gain anywhere from between like – if you're a newbie, maybe a pound a month uh, as a female, a pound and a half at most. Um, if you are a, an advanced female lifter – about a half a pound a month maybe is you're going to be about 50% less than men just in general. That's a very generic uh, number that I'm just throwing out. There's no studies to back up that women gain muscle at a 50% slower rate, but it's just the fact of what I've seen over time uh, because of hormone levels and things like that and just the ability to move load and mass. But what you should probably do is periodize it to a sense where you have a fat loss phase, you get a little bit leaner. From there, you start reverse dieting until maintenance. So now you've gotten back to your maintenance calories without adding any weight. Stay there for about a few weeks just to really settle into that maintenance and then approach it from a lean gaining phase. And while you're at that maintenance, I would optimize your training. So now it looks like this. We've spent, let's say, 12 weeks getting lean. We got 12 weeks to get lean. Cool. We're lean now. From here, I'm going to reverse back up to maintenance. Once I get to maintenance, let's say it took me six weeks to get there, six to eight weeks to get there. As I'm reversing up to maintenance and I'm adding calories, I'm increasing volume of training. Once I get to maintenance and I've had a higher uh, volume of training at this point and I'm still consistently thinking about progressive overload and trying to build on top of the weight I'm lifting, once I'm at that point, I'm at maintenance, I'm following a high volume bodybuilding program as a, as a female targeted towards the muscle groups that I want to grow, um, at that point, I am going to optimize training and nutrient timing. So I'm not adding calories yet, but I'm going to really look at like, hey, let me look at the nitty gritty. Let me take creatine. Let me take more fish oil. Let me make sure that I'm timing my protein properly throughout the day. Make sure I'm timing carbs pre and post workout, maybe even using 20 to 30 grams of carbs for an intra workout, highly branched cyclic dextrin to help me build muscle while I'm training. And then from there, I'm going to optimize training even further by adding things in like drop sets or myo reps or pause reps or just focusing heavily on progressive overload to make sure you're getting stronger. Maybe add some more volume. Do things that are going to intensify your training. Now we're trying to gain muscle without adding calories. That's going to be the first step in order to gaining size without fat. Because a lot of people do not optimize their nutrient timing, their supplementation, or their training, and it's not the end-all, be-all. Those things don't play a bigger role than nutrition per se. But if we're trying to optimize muscle growth without gaining fat, the best thing to do is to sit at maintenance to ensure we're not going to gain fat and then try to change all those other things. Because you can build muscle in a maintenance-level caloric intake if you optimize the things outside of your calories. Once you do all those things, maybe it takes you a month, maybe it takes you three, it really depends on how quote unquote, unoptimized your training was when you started doing this. At that point, you're going to add just a little bit of calories. I'm talking five to 10% at most. Um, add a tiny bit of calories via carbohydrates, keeping fats kind of low, um, high enough to support hormonal and nervous system function. Uh, protein going to be around one to 1.2 grams per pound. I say 1.2. It's completely unnecessary for a gaining phase. However, if you are a light female, you might not even be getting enough protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis in each meal. And what I mean by that is if you're 105 pounds and you want to gain 10 pounds of muscle, if you're consuming 105 grams of protein or even worse, like 0.8 grams per pound, which is technically okay, you're getting like 15 grams a meal if you eat five meals a day or you have to eat three big meals. And even at that, some of your protein is going to be coming from veggies and grains and fats and things like that. So it's not the most optimal from amino acid profile. And I'm going on a, on a little bit of a rant here, and I'm kind of <laughs> on a tangent. Um, so I apologize if I'm talking fast, but this is the stuff I love. But essentially, 
if we can take your protein up to about 1.1, 1.2, we can ensure that you're getting enough bioavailable protein three to five times per day. So it's coming from the right sources that are high in the right amino acids, and it's in the dosages that is needed to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which is anywhere between 25 to uh, 45 grams. Uh, but as we add calories via carbohydrates, you're getting more protein from potatoes and rice and vegetables and peanut butter and fr- like uh, different fats and things like that. And those aren't the best muscle building proteins. So keeping it a little bit higher on a gaining phase, I think is actually really, really important. Um, it's, it's not talked about in the literature very much. However, a lot of people that review a lot of research and coach high level bodybuilders, physique athletes will agree with me on that. Um, and I've heard many of them say the same thing. So that, that would be my recommendation and you just take it slow. Like you, I'm a big fan of high protein, high carb, low fat diets. You don't want to bring your fats so low that you're having any hormonal issues. However, if you're in a a maintenance or a surplus, you probably won't be having any hormonal issues anyway, because calories as a whole are going to be the biggest precursor for hormonal health, not just fats as a macronutrient, but calories as a whole. Um, So I'm a big fan of that. I think it's a great way to lean gain is to have a higher carb approach um, with a relatively low slash moderate fat intake. Next question, three questions from Logan Tyler Nelson. How would you program for someone on TRT, so testosterone replacement therapy? Um, Actually, this is funny because I had another person fill out the – I did the little question box on Instagram, and I had another person that literally just said TRT. So I said, give me podcast questions. They said TRT. Um, So first of all, Give me a full question so I can actually like go in depth on it. But um, obviously, somebody like some people want to know about TRT. Um, so just HRT in general for hormone replacement therapy for a lot of people um, out there, men and women who need uh, hormonal health, which is fairly common nowadays. And I actually have a handful of clients that are on TRT, HRT, um, even have a couple guys that are on uh, PEDs for bodybuilding. So um, it's something I wouldn't say that I'm super well-versed in, but well-versed enough to handle and help with. TRT and HRT are pretty simple um, because if we look at what HRT or TRT does, it brings you back to hormonal uh, homeostasis. So how I'm going to program for somebody on TRT is really no different than how I'm going to program for a guy not on TRT. Um, The only difference is I might be able to actually increase volume, uh, possibly increase calories, Uh, for this individual, not because he's above average, but because he's back to his average, back to where he should be. Uh, The only way you're going to get approved for TRT in America is if you're deficient. So by creating an, uh, by being in a deficiency and then creating uh, a surplus of it or creating a proficiency, so actually getting efficient in it, you're literally just going back to normal. Now, what I will say is most individuals are not normal. So I believe in America you need to be a level of like 245 or lower in order to actually have a doctor's prescription to get TRT. Don't quote me on that, but I want to say it's around that. Now, 245 for a male under the ages of 50 is is horrible. Like, and I And I say that, I don't mean to say like shit on people when I say it's horrible, but that's a, an extreme deficiency. Um, I would consider, so I had mine tested and all, I mean, I don't care. I'll fully disclose this. I had mine tested not long ago. And I want to say it was like four I'm going to get it tested again. Um, I get it tested like two to three times a year, all my hormones and blood panels and stuff like that. But four fifty seven is, is like right in the middle of average. Um, I want to say average is 
between they say 300 to 800 or 900. But if we look at the 1600s, normal was between like a thousand and two thousand. If we look at the 1800s, it was between like 800 and 1500. Like we are low as a as a society. So 245 is like scary. So, but let's say you take TRT, you go from 245 up to 500. Well, now you're right around where I'm at, which is just average. Still not optimal in my opinion. Um, I wouldn't like you don't want to have a more is better uh, mentality. But for me, like, fuck, I would much rather be closer to 700, 800 at the top of that range. So I'm doing everything natural possible to try to get there. But if you take TRT and you bring yourself up to that like 500 level, let's even say 600. Well, now I can just give you what's optimal. I can give you more calories and and more volume, Um, but it's not going to be superficial levels. If you're taking TRT more more or less like not even TRT if you're taking testosterone because that's not replacement. If you're taking t- testosterone or any s- form of PED, performance enhancement drug, uh, in order to get to superficial levels, that's where we can consider going above and beyond. That's where we can consider, okay, now you can probably consume more protein than average. You can consume more t- total calories than average. You can do more volume, more intensity than average. And also during a diet, you can handle more cardio without breaking down muscle than average because you have a constant anabolic response in your body. Um, so for those individuals, I will program differently. Um, there's going to be more intensification. So there's going to be more drop sets, more um, intraset stretching. There's going to be more myo reps, pause reps. There's going to be more like just blood and guts inside the training because they can handle it and it's really fun. And that's stuff I like putting in my training as well, but it's not a weekly thing. Um, it's, it's sparingly. It's like one session, one or two sessions in a single week per month. So every four weeks, adding some stuff like that in is okay. Um, but for somebody on TRT, I'm not changing much. Uh, it just, it just brings you back to optimal. So now it's like, okay, now you're fixed. I can really take you through a normal protocol without worrying about too much of the adaptations that might occur from going too hard or being too stressed out. Um, favorite carb before bed. So I don't really have a favorite carb necessarily before bed. I guess you could say bananas because I tend to eat a banana before bed every day. But I mean, and I usually eat either sweet potato or rice for dinner every night. I'm pretty boring with it. But um, I'm I'm a big fan of like bro dieting. I think it's I think successful if you want to get really lean, um, maintenance and, and gaining is a little bit different, but I wouldn't even say it's different. It just, you don't need to stress about it as much because if you want optimal results, I think this is the case around the board. If you can fill 80 to 90% of your diet with bro foods, I think you're going to be better off. I think that it's going to be easier to digest, absorb and stay lean while trying to gain or, or perform better or just utilize your calories better. And that's basically has me looking like I eat oatmeal every day, um, but in the morning and I eat white rice or sweet potato every day. Um, for me, I prefer white rice over anything, mainly because too much sweet potato just, just feels like a rock in my stomach, just feels like a lot of density and, and I just don't like feeling bloated. So I prefer white rice. Um, uh, but it's not like a bedtime snack for me. My bedtime snack is like, uh, casein protein, PB2 and bananas, uh, mixed up with some water. So it's like ice cream or like more like a frosty consistency, frosty from Wendy's. If you're familiar, um, ex fat kid right here that used to love french fries and my frosty but uh i will put that in the freezer and make it like a little cold ice cream thing majig and uh that's my carb source bananas <laughs> favorite pre and and by the way there was actually a study that showed uh poor sleep following carbohydrates versus fats so they found people who consumed all their carbs in the morning had better sleep 
which is very contrary to what has been believed and very contrary to what my thought process would believe because my thought process is uh, having carbohydrates in the evening will blunt the cortisol response, bring you into more of a parasympathetic rest and digest state, and it'll be easier to sleep. I know for me, I feel great and can sleep like a baby when I have a lot of carbs. So I'm interested in that. But the individual, uh, the sleep researcher that I heard say this and recite the study will be on my podcast soon. I can't remember what date I'm interviewing her, uh, but she will be on as well as another sleep researcher. I'm having two sleep researchers back to back. They're already scheduled in the books. Um, I'm excited to go over similar studies and different studies with each person and get multiple um, viewpoints because I think sleep is a tricky subject and I think it's so important, but we want to neglect it. And I've been wanting a sleep expert to come on. So this is going to be cool. But, um, but they found that study, which I thought was interesting. Um, it might change if training was in the afternoon, not 100% sure, but um, – and I don't know if it was a significant difference, if it was just a, like splitting hairs. Like that's a thing too, but um, but yeah, that's something to take note of. Favorite pre-workout meal. So for me, my favorite pre-workout meal kind of changes. So right now, my favorite pre-workout meal is uh, gluten-free quick oats from Bob's Red Meal with – cinnamon, but I should really say I like oatmeal with my cinnamon because I put that much fucking cinnamon in there. Uh, oatmeal, cinnamon, and stevia. So it's a cup of oatmeal, bunch of cinnamon, packet of stevia. I put one tablespoon or less. So usually it, it depends on my macros. So then I'll adjust this. If I have room for it, I'll do a full tablespoon. If not, I'll do like a half or like three quarters of a tablespoon of grass-fed butter after it's cooked. Drop that in there so it just melts on top. Um, and then I'll have uh, egg whites with diced up spinach and cooked in coconut oil or cooked in just spray try to keep the fats minimal so my only fat is really coming from the the butter that is my normal pre-workout meal but that's my normal pre-workout meal because i usually work out three hours afterwards because there's a good amount of fat i mean that's going to be 15 grams of fat quite a bit of carbs and a good amount of protein that's very slow digesting but i usually train three hours after i eat it like 6 a.m. and then I train at like 9 a.m. So 8 or 9 a.m. Um, if I train at like 7, 7.30, which happens at times, I will change the oats for cream of rice and I will lower the fat of the butter. So now I go from a full tablespoon to a half tablespoon, which is going to be about five and a half grams of fat. Cream of rice, which is the, can be the same amount of carbs with zero fat in it, throw a little blueberries in there for flavor and then egg whites still. So now just because if I'm getting closer to my workout, I have a very similar meal, but I'll switch up the oats for cream of rice simply to keep fats lower, fiber lower, the starch a little higher uh, glycemic, so it just goes right into my system, easier to digest because I'm closer. If I'm, work, if, if I'm working out at 7, I'm going to eat at 6. I want something fast digesting. Um, back in the day, one of my favorite ones, like I remember when I got ready for my physique show, I had the same pre-workout meal every day like routine. I would take oatmeal, water, protein powder, and Adam's peanut butter. And I would mix it. So it would be like protein powder with water, mix it up, throw some peanut butter in there, mix it up, throw some oats in there, mix it up, put it in the fridge overnight. Um, and then I'd wake up in the morning and it was just like that. We call it proats, but protein oats. But it was just like cold, mushy, perfect. Um, so I, I love that. That's a really good one. Um, and that's with whey protein, not like my nighttime thing that I do right now, which is casein. VM Gillette. Which micronutrients are most important for improving body composition. Um, so one I would say is very important, but it's not technically a micronutrient, um, would be omega-3 fatty acids. It's not a micronutrient, but I throw it in there um, with micronutrients in my content when I speak on this subject because 
it is a smaller nutrient. It's a fatty acid, um, but it's not a fat. So it doesn't kind of has macros, kind of doesn't, but that that's something I would throw out there. That's going to be very important for joint health, performance, muscle protein synthesis, um, insulin sensitivity, metabolic rate, um, a lot of things. I mean, it's just super important. Brain function, everything. So fish oil is definitely going up there. I would put vitamin D up there because it, it's a hormonal precursor. So it has quite a big of uh, quite a big effect on your hormonal system, on your endocrine system. And that's going to obviously affect body composition quite greatly. Um, and then I would throw uh, magnesium up there for sure because magnesium is a very common deficiency. So a lot of people have deficiencies in vitamin D and magnesium. So those two are up there. And uh, magnesium is going to really help with recovery of your muscles and of your nervous system. Both of those are obviously contributing pretty heavily to uh, body composition. So that would go up there. And then, so omega threes, which don't really count, but I'm going to put it up there just to get it in your ear, vitamin D, magnesium. I would say zinc. I'm pausing so you guys can hear the ice cream man. Why? I swear this dude comes at a different time every day and he, and he comes only when I'm recording my podcast, um, at my house. We have like my office is in a room. I chose this office because it has the biggest window upstairs, and I just like having a huge window that I can look out. Uh, but of course, it faces the street, and I hear this fucking ice cream man, and he has the creepiest. So he's in one of those little tiny three wheelers um, that all ice cream men are in. There he is. He's smoking a cigarette right now. Come on, dude. You're approaching little kids with a cigarette in your mouth. I'm sorry for the tangent, guys, but this is just ridiculous. So he he drives. With a cigarette, listening, and he has that little everybody knows that. And he, every once in a while, it'll stop, and this female voice comes on, and it says, Come and get some ice cream, kids. And it goes back to it. And me and Shannon were taking Blakely out of the car one day, and we just heard, Come and get some ice cream, kids. And we turn, and we see this guy sitting there, big dude smoking a cigarette coming down the <laughs> street. And I was like, Yo. That is creepy. Blakely, don't look at that man. Never talk to that man. <laughs> I hope he's not around when you get older. Um, anyway, okay. So uh, vitamin D, magnesium. I'm sorry for the tangent, guys. Um, I hope you guys appreciate those as much as I do. Um, magnesium, uh, zinc, iron, and calcium are three vitamins that I don't necessarily recommend to a ton of people. However, they do have a big contribution to body composition in certain senses. Like for example, zinc uh, for men with testosterone, that's going to be a big one. If you have a zinc deficiency, you're likely going to have lower testosterone levels. So if you have a deficiency, it's good to bring that up. Um, calcium, uh, I mean, and, and the reason I'm really saying calcium, iron, and zinc, not only because they have health, hormone, bone, yada, yada benefits, but also because they're commonly deficient in bodybuilders and athletes. Um, so we have to look at like basically Thinking about what – I mean because there's fat-soluble and water-soluble. As an athlete, if you sweat a lot, you're going to want to pay attention to the water-soluble ones because you're flushing a lot of them out by drinking so much water and urinating a lot and also because you're sweating a lot. Um, for bodybuilders getting ready for stage, if you're getting extremely lean, which you probably should be if you're getting on stage, you should probably consider supplementing with all vitamins and minerals but especially the fat-soluble ones because as you get leaner, it becomes harder for your body to store fat-soluble vitamins because you have less – fat on you. Um, so from food, you might not be absorbing as much. So those are the big ones. Um, but in general, like in my, my cabinet, uh, I'm taking zinc, vitamin C, 
uh, fish oil, obviously, uh, magnesium, and vitamin D every day. So vitamin D, vitamin C, uh, magnesium, and zinc are the big ones for me. The reason I'm taking vitamin C is because I train really hard. When you train really hard, you're breaking down the muscular system, the skeletal system, so on and so forth, which they get stressed, they adapt, they grow, they get bigger. That's great. But so does the immune system. So as we train, we also break down and wear and tear on the immune system. Well, if individuals are training really hard, they're dieting, and they're not supplementing with vitamin C, they're more likely to get sick. So because I'm breaking down my immune system on a regular basis through training and just hard work and stress on the nervous system, I'm supplementing with vitamin C to try to combat that. Um, and I've seen very good results with recovery because there's some evidence to show that vitamin C can help with collagen and protein and things like that to help recovery as well, uh, but also just to make sure people aren't getting sick. James Ward, 9285. Negative side effects for vegans, vegan females who eat a lot of tofu. Um, not as much as guys. Um, anytime we're eating a lot of soy as men, you're going to have estrogenic effects. So basically, I mean, the big thing here is uh, tofu has isoflavins. Uh, and it's a chemical. I, I need to, I would need to pull it up to, to give you guys exact specific data on, and, and I probably should have, this is probably why I should review the question, so I apologize, but essentially there is benefits to soy, right? Soy does have vitamins and minerals that are helpful for us, um, but there's also some, some truth to too much tofu, isoflavins, soy, these things causing an uh, overly overproduction of estrogen. So when it has too much of an estrogenic effect, not only can that negatively impact men's testosterone, but it can negatively impact the balance of your estrogen in your body. Men and women both need estrogen, but we need it in healthy balances. So if we create an overabundance of anything, we can have issues. Um, one of them I know is risk of breast cancer, for example. They see that that goes up when you have too much estrogen. Um, but in general, some is great. Um, I would say like if you, if you consume moderate amounts or lower amounts, you should be totally fine. It's not something to worry about. Like if you have – like for example, I love uh, – like when we go to sushi and stuff like that, I love uh, uh, miso soup with little chunks of tofu in it and stuff. I love edamame. Uh, that I'm, I believe that's soy. Like you know, there's, there's certain products like I like – uh, liquid aminos, which has soy in it, like some of that stuff is totally fine. Like there has been, like for example, there was one anecdotal uh, research, not really a study, but a, it's more of an experimental thing. Like a guy basically was getting um, uh, gyno in his in his nipples, and he was having a ton of estrogenic effects, ton of uh, like female symptoms, um, and the doctors couldn't figure out why. And then little did they know, he's drinking soy milk every day like on a regular because he enjoyed the taste of soy milk since he was lactose intolerant. So if you're consuming a couple glasses of soy milk every single day or you're eating tofu every single day, yes, you can possibly have issues. But this is also why as vegans and vegetarians, uh, I'll plug uh, – we've written a couple articles on this. I'll plug both those in the show notes. But it's very important to consider – all the negative side effects of being vegan. Like at the end of the day, I'm, I have vegan clients. I have vegetarian clients. If that is your choice for ethical purposes, I'm great with it. Um, the reality is, is research has shown this time and time again, it's not a healthier way of eating to promote any one type of blood marker. So you're not going to have improved cholesterol or total health or cardiovascular health or digestive health or weight loss or anything like that by being vegan or vegetarian. We've proved that, right? The caloric theory proves that. Uh, but it also proves that you can lose weight on a vegan diet. If you follow macros in, in your calories, you can absolutely get lean on a vegan diet. Um, 
research will show muscle growth is a little bit more difficult. Is it possible? Absolutely. Our new article written by Coach Lisa, a fantastic article on how to get jacked as a vegan. So we talked about that. It's absolutely possible. It's just a little bit more difficult. It takes a little bit more structure and specificity. So for the people listening to this that are vegan or vegetarian, um, I would be aware of consuming too much tofu or soy, but most importantly, I would be cautious of what to supplement with and how to time your nutrients and where to source those nutrients so that you don't run into any deficiencies because that's the biggest problem. It's running into deficiencies along the way. Riri's Fitway. What would you do if a client do- simply doesn't believe in measurements slash pictures and only the scale? Um, it, that's a constant education loop. Um, sometimes it's hard to completely change people's thought process, but I think it comes down to honestly just trying over and over again on like how can I get this person to understand where I'm coming from um, and show her the evidence. Like, and something I like often like to do with clients is say, hey, give me three weeks. Give me three weeks, 21 days. In hindsight, 21 days is the amount of time that it takes to build a habit. But I say, like, give me 21 days of following this consistently. And if you do not understand or see the benefits or literally get a result from it, we can do it your way. We can do it a completely different way. But I'm very confident in working, so I just want to prove to you. But it only will happen if we consistently do it. So if I get them to buy in for three weeks and I can educate them along the way, I can show them what we're doing. Then I can get them to a point that says, okay, I get it. You're right. It's like daily weigh-ins. Like, hey, I don't want to weigh in daily. I don't, I don't like seeing the scale. I'm like, okay, well – what would you would you consider weighing in daily if it got you a better relationship with scale? Yes. Okay, well, let's give it a try for a couple of weeks. I'll support you through it. And then we break that habit. We break that negative feedback loop in their head. Um, same thing with measurements and, and stuff like that. Or, I mean, if you don't have a big client roster or experience, it's hard to do this. But for me, I have so – I've worked with thousands of people, um, literally. Like, I mean, over the years with people doing my eBooks, with people on the membership site, with people doing my coaching, reading my articles, like I've literally had my hands on – um, physically in person as a client or over the internet, thousands of people now. So I can pull up research of like, Hey, this was my client. Hey, this was a case study that was sent to me based on what we did. I can show you right here that the reason for them tracking measurements or biofeedback or X, Y, Z is the reason they saw results without stress. I can show you reasons why just tracking weight isn't a good idea. So having like Actual evidence of real people that you've worked with, I think, is one of the best ideas you can go with. Life with Kila. Are there supplement brands you use or recommend to clients? Yes, there is. Um, I will link my favorite brands in the show notes. Um, so there's a few that I use. It really depends on the, the product. So, for example, like when it comes to vitamins and, and minerals, I really like uh, Garden of Life. Uh, I, I lost my train of thought there. I love Garden of Life because not only are they ranked really high on um, Labdoor.com, which shows us tested studies of like who is the most pure and high quality, um, but uh, I've talked to Dom uh, Saladino quite a few times, and he's a really big proponent of them. He promotes their brand. He's been there and seen their farm stuff, so I really trust him, and I trust his uh, – I trust the fact that he trusts them and he's seen what they do firsthand. Uh, so I really like them. And, and they have a good background. They have a good ethical side of things. And, and if you just look at their track record, they've been around for a long time and that's a good sign. Um, so I really like them. Uh, I love Muscle Feast. So uh, this is one of the brands for performance stuff that I recommend above all else just because they are ranked very high on Labdoor and they just have really good products. Like there's not a lot of proprietary blends, if any at all. 
Um, and there's a lot of purity. Like if you want pure citrulline malate, if you want pure highly branched cyclic dextrin, pure grass-fed whey, if you want pure creatine monohydrate, this is the place to go. Pure amino acids, essential amino acids. This is the place to go. I'll link them in the show notes. They actually, I've been talking to them about affiliation because they're actually a brand that I really do trust and believe in. Um, and I do support them. So it, it's a smaller company, but they're growing fast because their product is very pure. Um, so I'll link them in the show notes as well. Um, and then the other one I really trust, and they have a good blend of both, like vitamins, minerals, uh, just like general vitamins. Um, and then also performance products is Legion. Um, I really like Mike Matthews. Um, I know him personally now just from him and I podcasting and him and I messaging quite a bit just about random topics and just kind of talking. And um, I know some of their sponsored athletes. I've, I've tried all their products. Like I really do like them. I put them up at the same high regards as Muscle Feast. Um, the difference here is I actually know Mike personally. And because of that, I might actually put them at a higher regards. Um, but really like him as a person, really like what they're doing as a company. And I also will say too, like from an educational standpoint, like they're really big. So like if you look at if you look at supplement companies' websites, it's very uh, rare to see a blog or very informative education on the website. It's very much just like, here's our products. There you go. Um, but Legion has one of the most powerful and informative blogs that there is in the space, period. Um, even more so than some nutrition companies or training companies. So the fact that they're constantly putting forth educational information is huge. And, and add to that – they even are funding research that like Eric Helms is doing. They're doing a, a lean gain study, which I'm super excited about, but it takes a long time to come out, which I'm anxious for. But it's basically like lean gains, so like slower gains versus fast gains. And they're taking people through a long duration process for that. And Legion funded it, and they don't get anything out. It has n the, the study literally has nothing to do with supplements. Um, so it just goes to show what they're willing to do for the industry. So I, and he, they don't put that out publicly. Like I heard that from Eric Helms. And so um, just really cool. Uh, I really like th what they're doing as a brand and as a company and, and uh, Mike as a person. Perry.Kalia. Would you recommend taking creatine pre or post-workout? Uh, first step, I would recommend taking creatine whenever you can remember. I think people uh, glorify the timing of creatine too much. Um, at the end of the day, it saturates in your system. So as long as it's saturated, you're good, which basically what that means is as long as you're taking it daily, you're going to get the benefits from it. So I would recommend people take it when you remember. So for a long time, I took it first thing in the morning with my creatine. It was nowhere near my workout time, but that's when I was home. That's when I drank my green drink. And that's just when it was easy for me to remember taking it. So I would take it in the morning and then I'd have a busy day running around like crazy, going to school, training people, doing stuff. And then I'd train super late at night. It is what it is. But that was when I could remember. Um, now, because I have more control of my schedule and, and I can easily remember the most quote unquote optimal time, I take it post-workout with some protein and carbs. Um, studies will show that it's probably going to be absorbed best and it's probably going to create the best recovery response consuming those three together carbs protein and creatine so if you want to get nitty-gritty i would say uh post-workout with carbohydrates and protein ashley in progress i want to get into coaching but my degree is in humanities do i need a degree or is nasm fine nasm is absolutely fine and to be honest with you like i don't even think you need anything if you're passionate if you have experience if you're willing to go out of your way to educate yourself like doing things like coming to my seminar or checking out the live stream, hint, hint, you will be fine. 
Like those things are going to take you much further. Hiring a coach, hiring a mentor, reading books, going to seminars, watching seminars, webinars, courses, workshops. Those things that aren't quote unquote certifications will take you 10 times further over time than any cert will. Now, if you want to get your hands on somebody in the gym and train somebody, you should go through NASM, ISSA, um, whatever certification you need just to legally say that you're a trainer. Um, same thing with being a nutrition coach. You should go check out NCI. You should go check out MNU, Precision Nutrition, um, whatever you want to go through. You need those things legally and just to back you up and have some letters behind your name. But like as a whole, I don't think you absolutely need them. So um, I know a lot of amazing coaches that have degrees in fucking history or business or just random shit. So no, you don't need that at all. You just need motivation. You need desire. You need passion. And you need to be willing to go out of your way, um, invest your time and your money into furthering education. Like that's what you need. Experience will come after that. And experience will be the greatest teacher. So interning for somebody, mentoring under somebody, coaching clients, trying things on yourself, those things will teach you the most over time. But you need to be patient. And go listen to the episode with myself and Jordan Syatt on this podcast. It was last week's episode. You would you If you're in that boat, you need to listen to that episode. All right, guys. We still have quite a few questions, actually. So I'm going to try to rapid fire these. Papa Durgundy. Papa Durgundy. I drink – no, sorry, wrong question. If you know you won't be getting sleep, new dad, should you change your training? Um, I would say yes, not – you shouldn't change your training as far as like, oh, I was going to do legs tomorrow, but I didn't sleep much, so I'm not going to. You should say, oh, I'm going to do legs tomorrow, so I need to drop volume because I slept like shit because my, my son or my daughter was screaming and not sleeping. So it, it's less of a changing the whole training program, and it's more of just deloading it. And I did that quite a bit. Lower volume, lower intensity. Um, save your nervous system because you're just not there hormonally or neurologically. Uh, but, yeah, you should absolutely tra- change it. As you go and as you have bad nights of sleep, just deload your training a little bit to make sure you can actually handle what you're about to do. Melissa Nicholson. It's not Nicholson. Melissa Nicholson. I drink 300 milligrams of caffeine a day. Will this habit negatively affect my body eventually? Um, it depends on how you respond to caffeine. There's, uh, there's different people have different effects from caffeine. So there's people that are just non-responders. They barely even get a buzz at all. There's people that are hyper responders and they barely need anything. Um, so it really depends on where you're at with your caffeine tolerance. It also depends on your other stressors in your life because caffeine is a nervous system stimulant, but that also means that other nervous system stimulants like stress, um, be that emotional, physical training, diet, work, emotions, whatever, mental, um, those things will affect your nervous system too. So if you're doing too much nervous system stimulation, the caffeine will affect you faster. If you're getting enough sleep, if you're not in a super big deficit, if you are not overly stressed and you're a generally positive person, I would say probably not. I consume 300 milligrams caffeine from coffee every single day and I have and I always will. Um, But I, I manage the other stresses in my life and because of that, it's totally fine. Also, if you're drinking 300 milligrams of caffeine a day from coffee, but you're also doing a pre-workout and so on and so forth, that's another story. Brandon Whitehead. Shout out to Brandon. He's getting ready for a show with me. Uh, We're coming up close, man. We're going to be hitting peak week here soon for the first show, and then we have another show in August, man. Shout out to Brandon. Um, He's looking shredded. Pumped to get you on stage, dude. A comment I got from a leading influencer on College Protein this week when I told her that many of my consumers add collagen or whey into their desserts. He works for a company that provides like uh, healthy desserts and low-calorie jellos and stuff like that, which he sent me a care package. They're really fucking good. 
She said, he or she, I don't know if it was a guy or girl, don't waste your money on collagen powder. It's not better. The amino acid profile of whey is superior. It's a fad and will cost only cost you more to produce due to the high to the heightened slash inflated cost. Use a whey-based product if you want higher protein. The claims are that it helps with skin and nails, but so does protein. It's not it's not different to other protein in that it is uh, completely broken down during digestion and will have no ad benefits. What are your thoughts, Cody? Um, I think part of their statement is correct. Um, I don't know why they're bashing on it. Maybe they sell protein powder and that's why they're bashing on collagen. Um, it is a different uh, branch chain amino acid structure. It's not a protein replacement. Protein is going to have more total benefit. So if I had to choose one collagen or protein powder, I would choose protein powder. But again, I wouldn't choose protein powder over food. Just to clarify that I would just choose protein as a whole. Like I don't think collagen can replace protein powder because whoever this person is, they are correct. Um, it has a different amino acid profile. And what that means is it's lower in leucine. Leucine is one of the biggest and most predominant triggers of muscle protein synthesis. So if we want to grow, build muscle, change our body composition, build strength, it's not going to do us very well. That being said, it it's lower in those protein uh, amino acids, but it's also higher in other amino acids like glycine, for example. And these amino acids that it is higher in compared to whey, those ones have a bigger effect on joint inflammation, skin, nails, hair, stuff like that. So that part of what they said is incorrect. Yes, it has a different amino acid structure and chain. Yes, it is not as favorable for body composition, but it has more density of these other amino acids that will promote uh, gut health, joint inflammation, hair, skin, nails, stuff like that. And because of that, bone broth and collagen are actually a very beneficial supplement, not for body composition, but for health matters. So in that regards, I think they're wrong. Is it a fad? I wouldn't say it's a fad because bone broth and collagen have been around forever. Um, I mean, it's, it, the difference between it is is protein is made from meat and dairy and stuff like that, right? Well, collagen and bone broth is made from bone. It's collagen from bones and tendons. So we're Unless you're in a uh, Asian culture or even like an ancient culture that is consuming uh, t like oxtail or uh, joints, ligaments, um, actual bones of animals, you're probably not going to get enough collagen or uh, you don't really need collagen, I would say, but you're not going to get collagen in your diet unless you're consuming those things, which most people listen to this podcast don't. So if you have joint issues, if you have uh, injuries that are causing issues with tendons or ligaments, um, if you want to improve hair, skin, nails, stuff like that, then yeah, you should absolutely take collagen. You don't need a lot and it's not something that you're replacing protein with, but it can absolutely help. So I think they're wrong in that regards. Janae Kellogg, do you suggest different workouts for men and women? I know some trainers do and I change some things, but also give both male and female clients some of the same exercises. Um, yes, I do suggest different workouts, but I don't think they need to be that different. So I think like as like the principles of so like this is this is great. I just posted this on my Instagram about macros. Principle methods are many, principles are few. I'm trying to think of what the rest of it is. I only said that part, but there I think there's more to it. Methods are many, principles are few. Methods can change, principles never do. There's principles inside training. Principles are your, your compound lifts. Pr principles are your movement patterns. Principles are that intensity, volume, and frequency are kind of the things that matter in the way we gauge things, right? Volume is growth, intensity is strength, frequency is our tool to alter those things. 
those things never change. So between men and women, I use those same things, training splits, upper, lower, full body, things like that. Those don't change. What changes is where I place that volume and how I place that volume. So for women, they tend to do better with a little bit higher rep ranges. Um, they tend to do better with a little bit higher volume, so that's correlated to the same thing. They tend to do better with a little bit shorter rest periods. Um, there's not a ton of science out on this, but I believe there is some research showing that their higher estrogen dominance actually allows them to recover quicker between sets. So that might be why, but in my experience, women can handle more metabolic work. They can handle shorter rest periods. Um, they can high, handle higher reps and more volume probably because they have less total mass. So they're actually moving less weight in general, um, typically. And what that means is they can actually do more volume because they're not lifting as heavy of weight. And that's how they make up for that volume or that intensity drop. Um, so I do change things. And then exercises, like if I have a guy who wants to build his chest, we might add some like burnout sets of flies at the end. Well, a girl might not want to do burnout sets we might, of flies. We might do burnout sets of hip abductions or glute bridges or hip thrusts because they want bigger glutes right, or caps or, or ab work, more ab work or whatever it may be. Um, I might place more work on the triceps and deltoids um, and less on the biceps and the chest, uh, the pecs for a female. I might place more emphasis on the biceps and the chest for men because most guys, although they also want to build their triceps and their delts, I know a lot of guys that want a bigger chest. I know a lot of guys that want bigger biceps, Women don't come to me and say, hey, I want bigger biceps and bigger pecs. They usually say, like, I want more defined arms. When you have a defined tricep, that shows a lot more. When you have uh, more defined shoulders, that shows a little bit better on a female physique. Um, so I think it changes, like, where you're placing this volume to just cater to what they want to look like. Jen Johnston, do you find one type of approach that works best for fat loss phases with those who have hypothyroid? Um, while taking them through a fat loss phase that doesn't affect thyroid energy levels. This, this question is a good question, but it's a little, the grammar is a little bit up and down. So I'm trying to, trying to articulate it five days in a deficit, two days refeed, 10 days in a deficit, three days refeeds, one week on one week off, et cetera, or still a case of case by case situation. So basically what do I like to do with hypothyroidism? Um, clients, clients who are chasing fat loss, who have hypothyroidism, it depends on a couple things. Um, Hashimoto's is a form of hypothyroidism. So if you're an individual who has been diagnosed with Hashimoto's, we're definitely focusing on food quality above all else and trying to figure out what is triggering it most. Um, if you have hypothyroidism, we're still going to focus a little bit on, um, food quality, probably like lower glycemic carbs, lower carb in general um, sometimes. But at the same point, there are some hypothyroidism is the slowdown of the thyroid. Some carbohydrates can actually help speed up the thyroid. So it depends on your training. Um, in general, I'm probably going to really double down on anything I think is going to possibly benefit the metabolism to speed up. Um, if somebody is hyperthyroidism, probably quite the opposite because their, their metabolism is going at a, a rabbit pace. So it really depends and it varies. I mean, to be honest, it's very case by case. Uh, we're still trying to create a deficit. We're still trying to train. We're still really trying to manage stress levels. We're probably starting to think about like things like berberin or supplementation that's going to improve insulin sensitivity. We're probably focusing on quality of food, um, more paleolithic foods, not going on a full-blown paleo diet, but considering those types of foods. We're probably doing a little bit more of those things if hypothyroidism is involved, uh, but it's very case by case and I'm just really going to try to uh, double down on the metabolism. So absolutely, like uh, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say five two or ten three or 
alternating weeks or two weeks on, two weeks off or anything like that um, because those are all very, very individual. Um, I have clients that thrive on 5-2, some that thrive on 7-3, 10-3, some that thrive on 14-2. Like there's so many different approaches and every single person is, is completely different. It depends on their body weight, their muscle mass, their amount of fat, what they have to lose, their timeline, their lifestyle, um, their dieting history, their training, so many things. So, But what I will say is one of those things is going to come into play because in order for me to protect the metabolism as we diet and go into a fat loss phase, um, which is even more important with somebody who has hypothyroidism because any dysfunction of the thyroid is going to negatively affect the whole entire body, it's even more important with those people because one of the ways to protect that is – to incorporate more frequent diet breaks. Last question. Martin Foster, Marty Moore. Looking back as you started, I really like this question. Looking back as you started to gain more and more knowledge about training, nutrition, etc., how long did it take you to decipher legitimate, valuable info and advice versus complete shit? This is a broad follow-up, but what are some triggers and or red flags to look for in determining if something isn't value? isn't a value. Love that question. Um, man, looking back as I started to gain more and more knowledge, how did I decipher legitimate information versus complete shit? Um, the number one thing that comes to mind is, is if there's any dogmatism inside of a statement, question, or theory, method, strategy, coaching principle, if there's any dogmatism, any black and whiteness inside of that, I immediately write it off. Um, I might look into what they're saying to get their point of view or to trigger a thought process in my head, but the reality of that is if you are dogmatic about any approach, I have a strong feeling that you are very one-sided, and I don't believe good coaching comes from a one-sided mind. I think it comes from an open-minded person. I think it comes from an individual who is willing to explore all possibilities, who is willing to be wrong and willing to change their theories or their strategies, use something different for each client, use something different for your clients than what you use for yourself. Like, coaching as a whole is it's a it's a huge artwork it's a canvas and there's so many different colors we can use to paint this cam on this canvas but if you're stuck with just using one color and everybody has to be in this one narrow path i think you're going to have a rude awakening so the the first thing i look up for and that i think it kind of goes inside inside is that's like the biggest red flag but um i think when i started realizing that i needed to decipher this stuff is two things number one when the first time I got introduced to intermittent fasting, um, it worked great for me. Um, it was like a magic trick to me. Like I started fasting. It made my meals easier to consume. It, it worked with my schedule. I slept like a baby. I got to eat a massive meal every night. Um, I, I recomped. I, I got shredded. Like it just – it worked. I didn't have to track macros while I was doing it. Like it just worked for me at 20 years old being in school and, and training clients and, and – it just worked. It just worked for my lifestyle. It worked for everything. I, I bought into it, so it worked even better. Um, and then I put a bunch of clients on it, and all of them failed. So that was a huge wake-up call for me because I was like, oh, shit. This isn't a magic trick. This isn't a magic pill. This isn't this one-size-fits-all plan. It works for me, but I'm way different than all these individuals I'm working with. So that was a big eye-opener to me to really start deciphering good knowledge versus bad knowledge and more so just different knowledges, right? Because I was being dogmatic and black and white about intermittent fasting. I thought everybody needed it. Um, so that was a huge one for me. Um, the next one where I really started to decipher it was when I first did my contest prep. So I did my contest prep and I was using a specific strategy of macros. So it wasn't like daily intake. It was more meal by meal. So I had a certain amount of protein. I had to hit each meal, a certain amount of carbs, a certain amount of fat. And I counted 
just the fat from my fat. So if I had peanut butter from my fat for that fat source, let's say I had 10 grams of fat per meal and I was eating six meals a day at the time. So I would measure out what 10 grams of fat would be, which would be like 1.2 tablespoons. I would not count the carbs or the protein inside of that fat. It made tracking by meal much easier. And as we dieted, we just pulled fats per meal, carbs per meal, so on and so forth, which was great. But it, there wasn't a lot of flexibility inside that because I had a very, very small uh, list of foods I could choose from to make this work. Um, that led to me getting on stage shredded and then rebounding and gaining weight afterwards. I sought out advice from Eric Helms. I remember emailing him way back because um, I was going on a cruise post-show, and he told me that I probably shouldn't. Um, I did anyway, and I gained a bunch of weight, so uh, I probably should have listened to him. Uh, but it also led to me understanding things a little bit better, and actually uh, that led to a lot of growth because it allowed me to – see what a lot of the clients I was going to take on were going to go through as well. So I was glad I did it at the end, in the end of the day. But my point with this being is I went through that process. I got shredded, but I didn't know why. I saw that there was numbers. I saw that I was tracking, but there was a small list of food. What were – like then my numbers at the end of the day were different each time. Like what worked, what didn't work. There was no education inside the coaching I went through. It was just do this, do this, do this. And I did it, and I got result, but I didn't know why. So when I gained weight, I started searching. And that's when I found Eric Helms, I found 3DMJ, I found a lot of evidence-based researchers and coaches, and I started going down this rabbit hole of science-based practices for natural bodybuilders. And this was a huge paradigm-shattering moment because it was the first place where people were uh, kind of like dispelling myths, but then also explaining what actually works, why it works, and using different methodologies for different individuals. So they were taking different points of research from different places and putting them together to have a solid plan. And when I started seeing all this, I started really understanding that there were so many different ways to do things, and it wasn't supposed to be one-sided. It wasn't one-size-fits-all. That's when I really started to look at different information and start to say, like, is this dogmatic? Is there multiple ways of doing this? Is this applicable to more than just one person? Um, is this study that they did, is this actually applicable in our real life? Or is the scenario in which they put these test subjects through completely non-replicable inside of real life? So that was probably that moment is when I started diving in this. And I mean, this is five years ago, however long ago, that um, I went from just being a trainer to really being an evidence-based practitioner and, and becoming a nutrition coach. And I think that's what drove me to continually seek that. Um, and it also opened my eyes to like, for lack of better terms, what you said, complete shit. So the best triggers or red flags for you guys is looking out for anybody who's being dogmatic, anybody who is uh, calling out people, like not necessarily calling people out because if somebody's completely wrong and you want to call out uh, a theory or a topic or a method or a tool or a strategy that is incorrect, like you can do so. Um, but I don't think we should be hating. I don't think we should be um, – I don't think we should be glorifying any one way. Like just like I think macros and flexible dieting works really well, I'm not going to glorify that and say that keto doesn't work or say that intermittent fasting doesn't work. And if you look at most of the evidence-based practitioners who are advocates of flexible dieting, some of the people that really brought it to life, uh, Alan Aragon, Lane Norton, Eric Helms, uh, Martin McDonald, like a lot of these people who are really good with the educational side of things, they will not stick to one solid method. And I think that's the biggest red flag you guys need to look for. Anybody who is one-sided, who is dogmatic, who is black and white about any topic, those are the people and the ideas you need to stay away from. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. 
It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.